0: Hi, I'm
1: Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Kanibos, and this is Political Theory 101.
0: So today we're going to do a Persian... ...political theorist... ...Nizam al-Mulk... ...now Nizam al-Mulk... ...comes from the Seljuk Empire... ...the Seljuk Empire... ...is a Turkic Empire... ...in the 11th century... ...but it's a Turkic Empire... ...that is based in Persia... ...so originally the Seljuks are... uh, ...migratory steppe people... ...they move into Persia... ...they establish a Persian Empire... ...so these Turks... ...establish a Persian Empire... The military is, of course, preponderantly Turkic, but the civil administration is Persian in form, and it includes a lot of Persians. So Nizam al-Mulk is a Persian under a Turkic empire. Now, Nizam al-Mulk is also the vizier for the Seljuk empire, a quite notable vizier. He serves for several decades His period of activity overlaps with Michael Sellos, the Byzantine theorist we did a little while ago. So there's going to be maybe some comparing with Michael Sellos. That's not to say that Nizam al-Mulk would have read Michael Sellos or that Michael Sellos would have read Nizam al-Mulk, but they are contemporary and they're on opposite sides of a war because as you might remember from the Michael Sellos episode, there's this battle Manzikert where the Byzantine Empire is badly defeated by the Turks. Well. Which Turks? The Seljuk Turks. And who's the vizier at the time? It's Nizam al-Mulk. So we're going to be in the 11th century again, but we're going to be over in Persia with Nizam al-Mulk today. So let's do a little bit of the basics here. Nizam was vizier under two different Seljuk sultans. The first is Alp Arslan, who you might remember he's the one who won the battle and showed mercy to Emperor Romanos IV. And then Malik Shah I. Right? So, while Nizam al-Mulk is vizier The Seljuks are at the absolute peak of their power. If you're not familiar with the territory of the Seljuk Empire, it extends from modern Turkey to modern Afghanistan. At its absolute peak, it more or less expelled the Byzantine Empire from Asia. The first crusade was called in response to the expansion of the Seljuk Empire. So this is a a quite important empire in the history of Europe as well. Uh, interestingly both al-mulk both our guy nizam al-mulk and the sultan malik shah are assassinated in the same year 1092 and we're going to talk about the circumstances that lead up to that assassination after those, both of them die there is a struggle for power among the four sons of malik shah the empire is badly weakened and it begins its period of decline. The Seljuk Empire doesn't last that long, and that's one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit. Why doesn't it last very long? What goes wrong in the Seljuk Empire? So a few few additional facts about this book and how it came to be written, uh, the book that that Nizam al-Mulk writes. Uh, The book's name is sometimes referred to as the Book of Government. Sometimes it's called Manners of the Kings. There are a few different names for it. The sultan, Malik Shah, he came to power at the age of 18, and early in his reign, he relied heavily on his father's vizier, Nizam al-Mulk, to stay alive. Because the new sultan was so dependent on the vizier to stay alive, The vizier acquired a huge amount of power and influence, and you'll see some historians argue that his power was even greater than that of the sultans he served, especially early in the reign of Malik Shah, when Malik Shah was a boy, he was inexperienced, he didn't know what he was doing. But there were, however, significant periods of discord between the vizier and Malik Shah, especially as Malik Shah got older and more experienced and more able to question whether he ought to defer so much to his vizier. The story goes that in one of these periods of discord, Malik Shah commanded his vizier along with several other people to propose treaties on the art of government, maybe to test his vizier against possible alternatives. And the story suggests that it's Malik Shah's wife, one of his wives, he had several, who is agitating to get... Nazim al-Mulk fired. Only Nizam al-Mulk's work is said to have met with the sultan's approval. Only it survives, So we don't really know if any of these other works were actually written, actually completed. Uh, we certainly don't have them. What we have is a copy of the work that was made in 1274. And Alex and I are working off an English translation of this copy. The original text is believed to have been written somewhere between 1086 and 1091, so just a handful of years before both Nizam and the sultan are assassinated. This puts this book about 10 to 15 years after Michael Sellos' chronographia that we read a a few episodes back. The book, however, isn't widely circulated until the 12th century, until uh, there's a calm in that period of civil conflict. So it gets circulated somewhere between 1105 and 1112. That's what our sources uh, guess. Now, a lot of this is motivated by uh, an interest in Sassanid political ideas. A lot of the relationship between religion and the state that we get in this book is reminiscent of accounts from the Sassanid period. Now the Sassanid period, the Sassanids are a late antique Persian empire. They coincide with the late Roman empire and even, uh, even the high point uh, high period Roman empire. And they are Zoroastrian empire and the Sassanid empire is ultimately conquered by the Arabs during the Islamic uh, period of expansion so it's a pre-islamic empire and so just as michael sellos is kind of interested in pre-christian platonic ideas and wants to make those ideas fit with christianity nizam al-mulk has some interest in pre-islamic political ideas persian political ideas but he of course wants those ideas to fit with islam so how did the sassanids do it well For the Sassanids, kings are chosen by the wise lord, Ahura Mazda. Ahura Mazda is the name of the Zoroastrian god, the wise lord. And he endows the kings with wisdom, and the kings are ultimately accountable to them for what they do. So Nizam al-Mulk suggests that when kings die, they come before God with hands bound, and they are only set free to enter heaven if they have been just. So God endows the kings with the traits necessary to be just. Uh, he chooses them. He, he empowers them. And then whether or not they're able ultimately to be just is an open question. Now, if the sultans lose their way, what causes them to lose their way? Well, we don't get a very specific account of this from Nizam al mulk He makes reference to celestial accidents or the influence of the evil eye. Uh, If those things intervene, then God abandons the kings. The kingship disappears altogether. There's a period of tumult until God chooses another to bestow wisdom upon. So while God chooses the king, God does not protect unjust kings from rebellion. And that's very important. If you're thinking that this is something like a divine right of king's view, you have to bear in mind that it completely accounts for the possibility that kings may misbehave. And if they do, rebellion is the inevitable consequence of poorly behaved kings. So in that respect, there is a little bit of a charisma or majesty mechanic that is reminiscent of, you know, say Byzantine or Roman charisma arguments. It's not like a uh, say uh seventeenth century Thomas Hobbes uh, or a uh, you know patriarcha filmer kind of of absolutism that is not what we're talking about here. It's not a Charles the Second divine right of king's view. it's not like that. The king is endowed by God with wisdom, but the king, if the king is influenced by the evil eye or celestial accidents and he badly behaves, you certainly can rebel, and rebellion is the inevitable thing that occurs, right. So for Nizam al-Mulk, the old caliphate failed and the Seljuks were chosen by God to replace the caliphate. So what's the old caliphate? Well, before the Seljuks came along, there was a state called the Abbasid Caliphate based in Baghdad. Right? The Abbasid Caliphate went through a period of weakening and it's eventually subjugated by the Seljuk Empire. Now the Seljuks do not overthrow the Abbasid Caliphs or set up their own caliphate what they do is they keep the Abbasid Caliphs around in a subjugated position now the Abbasid Caliphs want to get out from under the Seljuks and eventually they do in the next century in the 12th century the 1100s but uh, during this period the Seljuks frame themselves as the protectors of the Abbasid Caliphs as their defenders Right now, that is an arrangement that works to some degree for both sides, because the Seljuks now look legitimate to Sunnis who still recognize the Abbasid Caliphs as the Caliphs uh, and the Abbasid Caliphs get to stick around. And that becomes the provisional arrangement that prevails while there is this huge power disparity between the Seljuks and the Abbasids. Once the Seljuk empire weakens, the Abbasids start getting ideas and they start rebelling and they eventually do get their independence in the 1150s. But that's a good uh, 60 years after, 60 to 70 years after the period we're discussing here. Uh, So the Seljuk Sultan is the master of the world. That's the expression that is used. And it's similar to the kind of king of kings language that you see in ancient Persian thought. So on this account, religion and kingship are said to be two brothers. They go together. But since the wisdom comes from God, we don't really get a systematic account of how wisdom is acquired, Uh, and we don't really get a systematic account of the virtues. So it's not like a Platonist account where there's you acquire these virtues and then these virtues and then these virtues through some kind of pedagogical process that is heavily structurally uh, arranged. You know, for Plato, becoming able to do philosophy or able to to have virtue is something that requires a very specific set of, of preconditions that you have to carefully arrange. There's none of that here because on this account, wisdom comes from God, right? All we really get in terms of, you know, how does wisdom come about is that Nizam al mulk says that sons tend to end up like their fathers. So merit and heredity tend to go together. We often think of merit and heredity as different or alternative bases for picking people. Nizam will say that you ought to pick people who are meritorious or deserving or talented. And he'll also say that you ought to pick people based on blood or birth. The reason he says both is that he doesn't see tension between these claims. He thinks that by and large, virtue is hereditary. Sons end up like their fathers. Uh, so instead of a systematic account of all of that, we get a lot of practical advice in this book, concrete advice about how to do very specific things how to hold specific ceremonies how to manage a household how to conduct audiences with people Uh, and in this respect the book is kind of similar to machiavelli's the prince although there you can't say that it's precisely the same because there is very much an effort to render this book compatible with islam and embedded in islam Whereas in The Prince, uh, Machiavelli often transgresses against uh, Christian ideas, and The the Prince, of course, is banned by the church. In this book, there is uh, more of a kind of of happy partnership between the political account and the religious theology. But we aren't going to get a more extensive discussion of the theology, in part because Nizam al-Mulk is an Orthodox Sunni Muslim, and he wants everyone to be... Orthodox. And he operates from the basis that, of course, if we are good Seljuks, we're going to be Orthodox. And we're going to be Orthodox regardless of whether we're Turks or we're Persians or we're any other group of people from the Seljuk territory. So there doesn't need to be, from Nizam's point of view, a big, uh, complicated discussion of how theology works or how the cosmos works, because there's meant to be a political consensus on religion. That informs this. Right? All of this means that we don't really get a very structural account of say cultural development here. Uh, We don't get an account of how, say, political economy interfaces with culture. All of that is avoided by positioning the virtue of the Sultan as a consequence of God. And so a lot of the kinds of questions that would come up in other political theory just don't need to be engaged here. When things go wrong, it's celestial accidents or the evil eye that's at the root of it. Right? Uh, so Nizam al-Mulk isn't interested in telling kings how to be good people or how to develop into be into good people. He instead wants to tell them what to do. He wants sultans to defer to this advice and to just do what he's telling them to do. And this is in part because he's the vizier and he wants to make the decisions. He's not really looking to help the sultan make decisions without his involvement. What he's doing is trying to impress the sultan, show the sultan, look how much I know about governing. Shouldn't you keep me? Shouldn't you stay out of my space? That's at least my impression reading this book. Do you have the same impression, Alex, or do you think a little bit differently about it? Uh,
1: Maybe there's a bit more than just, you know, God or fortune's will when it comes to how you can acquire wisdom or what the virtues are. I mean, he does kind of gloss over all the achievements of civilization, you know, like bridges or roads or grain stores or all these things, weapons. But, and he says that the main thing is if you can secure obedience, and then we'll get into maybe all the particular situations, how you do that. But if you can get that obedience, then there's going to be an abundance of what he calls wise and good institutions, and it links to what you were saying about merit being hereditary. Like in a in a in a story. So not because he doesn't teach the sultan in just theoretical language. I, I don't know if you mentioned there's a theoretical section and a narrative section, and in the narrative section you can be a bit more, well. You can introduce claims you wouldn't say in the theoretical section, like, for example, that the viziership should be hereditary. I mean, he gives the example of someone whose family uh, basically had books about the functions and duties and taught him how to be a secretary and how to act. So, yeah, I, I don't know.
0: Yeah, in the Sassanid period, the position of vizier was hereditary. And he does make an explicit argument that the viziership ought to be hereditary. There are stories that Nizam al-Mulk argued in other places that viziers themselves are divinely appointed. Uh, But that's not a claim that he makes in this text. It would not be a very safe thing to put into writing. It would not look very good to write that. Um, He does tend to, to criticize the sultan a little bit in spots, especially in the second part of the book. There are two parts to the book, and the first part is meant to have been written before the second part, though it's not clear how big the gap would have been between the writing of the first and the second, and in that second part, he gives the Sultan a hard time for appointing young, incompetent generals. He, uh, you know, gives the, you know, argues that the Sultan shouldn't be uh, giving so many titles out that he's diminishing the value of titles by uh, throwing them around. There's an argument that you, know, you, sh- you shouldn't be giving the same person multiple titles because oftentimes they won't be equipped to do all of the different roles associated with those titles. They may only be able to do some of those roles. And if you give them too many different things to do, they end up doing work that doesn't really belong to them. There's a lot of concern here about military people getting involved in the civil administration. Turks trying to be tax collectors when that is really something that for nizam the persians know how to do uh, and the persians know how to do it because they've always done it while the turks will have this uh, military attitude to the whole thing and they'll just uh strangle the peasants and squeeze as much as they can out of the peasants and that will lead to rebellion there's a lot of focus here on what causes rebellion and how to not cause rebellion at one point uh, somebody tries to advise the sultan to substantially cut the number of people in his employ from, I think, 400,000 to 70,000. And Nizam thinks this is is very stupid because all of the people that you fire have military and and civil administrative training, and they will put that to use rebelling against you if you quit paying them. (laughs) So... And they did. uh, Yeah, yeah. And then he tells stories about, of course, it happening. One of the things that he loves to do, he'll start with a kind of basic piece of advice, and then he'll tell a big story. Uh, Some of them are very long stories. Some of them are shorter. And the stories will sometimes be religious stories. Sometimes they'll be contemporary stories. Sometimes they'll be ancient stories. There are uh, an impressive range of different kinds of stories that he tells. And you know, I think it's, it's, it's kind of fun. Of course, some of the stories go on a bit and can be a little bit uh, difficult to read all the way through. He does have a tendency to go on a bit in the stories. I think part of where it gets really interesting is where we start to get a sense for what, in Nizam's view, is the role of the sultan. Because if Nizam wants to have free reign to administer the country, uh, he still needs to give the sultan a role, especially because he's writing this book in part to justify his job to the sultan. So he can't be suggesting that the sultan doesn't have anything to do. So we do, we do get a little bit of, of good detail on this. The sultan has a more ceremonial position. He's encouraged to be generous, to have a lavish and impressive court, And all of that is about creating a sense of majesty around the government so that the government is a little bit terrifying, a little bit impressive, right? He's not supposed to give very many direct orders. He's not supposed to change the laws or mess about with the structure of things, but he is encouraged to hear people's grievances two days per week. And the sultan is supposed to listen to petitioners without any intermediary. So the people come, they directly tell him what is going on. And then he's supposed to give some form of answer to the petitioners. Now, it's important for Nizam al-Mulk that the sultan know what's going on. The sultan needs to have a bunch of spies. Sometimes the word is translated as postmasters who bring him news and information and tell him what his officials are up to. And these spies are supposed to help keep the officials terrified of the Sultan. And the same goes for the petitioners. If you wrong someone and they travel to where the Sultan is and petition the Sultan and go, I was wronged by this nobleman. He screwed me. He treated me in an unjust way. He stole my land then the sultan will punish that person who did that thing to you. So the way that the sultan upholds justice on this account is that the sultan punishes wrongdoing. So the emphasis here is not on the laws being poorly constructed or incorrect. The emphasis is on the laws not always being followed and on the limited capacity of the sultan to enforce the law. So whereas it's the role of the vizier to administer It's the role of the sultan to enforce. And this even includes observing what the vizier is up to because Nizam explicitly says that if the vizier is bad, then that's the worst thing. Because if the vizier is bad, that will affect the whole administration. So the sultan has to watch the vizier. This is a clever move by Nizam. He's telling the sultan, spy on me. You can watch what I'm doing and you can observe whether I'm Doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Look at what I'm doing. Read my description of how I think about what I'm doing. So he tries to be very open with the sultan uh, and even encourages the sultan. Yeah, you shouldn't trust me. You shouldn't trust anybody. Spy on me. Spy on everybody. And you can see how the Seljuk Empire, it's a large empire. It's a lot of territory. And you're dealing with uh, an empire that doesn't have a ton of state capacity. So part of the trick here is how do you get the most leverage out of the state capacity that you do have? For Nizam, the emphasis is always on have a load of people who are in your employ and use those people to gather information on e- on one another. Have everybody spying on everybody and reporting to everybody about what's going on. Encourage everybody to tell you anything that they don't like that happens, knowing that you will justly enforce the law so at the same time though there's not going to be any making of new laws or policies really the islamic law is meant to be perfectly adequate in its existing form the only thing that goes wrong is that sometimes people don't follow it and the sultan's got to make sure they follow it he's got to spy on everybody and he's got to answer those petitions so, there's an emphasis on ancient laws here and on there being an ancient way of doing things that works if you actually do it. And the problem for Nizam is that people don't always do it. People sometimes do other things. And so, there are certain, I, I think, from a you know, more modern or contemporary standpoint, disadvantages to this and that you have a kind of lack of dynamism or adaptability. You're not going to change the fundamental laws. You are just focusing on making the ancient set of laws work as well as they can be made to work. It's a constant struggle to enforce the laws and prevent uh, widespread decadence from setting in. So all the problems are about moral decadence, Moral problems come from celestial accidents or the evil eye. There isn't a structural or systematic account of where they come from. Uh, Because you can never get rid of them, you can never trust anybody, there's always more of these problems. Uh, All you can really do is have a ton of people in your employ who are spying on everybody, try to get as much information from them as possible, And of course, you've also got to mistrust the information that you get from these people because they will lie to you if it's to their advantage. So you got to get everybody to talk to you about what's going on. That's very tricky in practice, isn't it?
1: Is this kind of surveillance state though? Is it it a way of not only giving majesty for the sultan in a sense of charisma, but majesty as like an economic arrangement where all the people... All, all the power is concentrated in very few hands over a mass scale, and you kind of have to attract all the learned, all the experienced people with your giving, your gift giving.
0: Yes. If you're very generous and open-handed in giving out jobs and giving out money, but not titles, because titles are supposed to stay important. But if you are very generous in, in the giving of jobs, then people who want to work talented people will come to you knowing that you will give them a good job pay them well uh, and that they ought to come to you rather than somebody else so it has a kind of magnet effect the generosity and uh, hospitality the willingness to take anyone in who shows up uh, sucks in talent doesn't it also
1: imply that they shouldn't exist outside of your royal house outside of you giving them a place to stay because um, he says that, right? Yeah.
0: you want them to all be dependent in some way on the hospitality of the imperial seat. You want everybody with talent going. I owe my job to this person.
1: And there's different kinds of like dependence on the sultan, because a lot of classes have a right to a portion of the treasury. He says so, a yes. state salary. Whereas the peasants, mm-hmm. I suppose, they're supposed to be inviolable apart from obviously giving taxes but the taxes have to be fair and politely asked, but they have to sell their crops on the market. So yeah, they, they get a smaller portion of empire.
0: Yes, there is on the one hand, a constant emphasis on preventing the peasants from getting uppity and trying to get above their station. On the other hand, the mechanism for doing that is to be gentle with the tax collection. So the focus is always on don't aggravate the peasants by squeezing them too hard. Squeeze them just the right amount, but can we can we still link this to majesty as a kind of economy or not? because
1: it's like they can't I don't know why are they satisfied basically being in that level of dependence on the sultan? Is it there's no other way to protect their land basically than to have this figure of majesty which is so powerful that all other yeah enemies are kind of they submit humbly.
0: Yeah. If you think about an empire like this, uh, especially a relatively young empire like this that hasn't been around that long, it's very difficult to bring the Seljuk's power to bear everywhere at once. So you need a kind of awe-inspiring, majestic terror of this. On the one hand, total open-handedness, willingness to give everybody a job, willingness to, to throw money all over the place. But at the same time, Surve- heavy surveillance element and a willingness to be extremely ruthless with people who break the law. So it's it's a majesty that both comes from generosity and uh, uh, viciousness with punishment. And the reason that you have to make such a show of both of these things is that your state capacity is otherwise relatively limited. You can't be everywhere at once. And there are mountains, you know, those agros mountains that sit between a lot of the Persian seats and the, the eastern part of the empire and the western part, Anatolia, Syria, and so on. And so it's really a big walk or a big ride to get from one spot to, to another. And therefore, you have to really, really make a big show all the time to make up for the fact that your actual ability to go somewhere, look at something yourself, and make a judgment based on what you see is very limited.
1: But is it because, uh, yeah, you lack state capacity or is it just the conventions of the time? Same for Celos, Michael Celos in the Byzantine Empire. I mean, they, the road system, the network in the Seljuk Empire was still pretty impressive. Merchants come from East Asia, East Africa. Uh, so And also, when there's stories of commoners who complain at the king for not giving enough, and then – and yeah, as a, in the story section, as opposed to the theoretical section, it's a bit exaggerated. So the king gives out com- so many gifts; it's kind of unimaginable. But they still have an excess left afterwards. That's the point. So they still have state capacity, you might say, because their treasury is just so so much more has so much more majesty. Well,
0: there's, there's a a lot, a load of wealth, but your ability to translate that wealth into results is more limited. And this is in part why there's such deep criticism of the idea that you should cut the number of people that you employ so that you can acquire more gold. For Nizam, it's very obvious that having a bunch of gold in and of itself accomplishes very little. If you're not using that gold to own people, and I'm not saying necessarily slave, although, of course, you do have slaves, but, uh, If you're not using that gold to control people, to get people to do what you want, it doesn't serve a purpose. So raking in gold and sitting on it doesn't accomplish very much, but using that gold all the time, bringing in large amounts and also spitting large amounts out can give you large numbers of people who will help you to administer this territory, even in places that are very far away and have a large amount of autonomy. In comparing this to, say, the Byzantine or the Roman Empire, you want to emphasize with Persian empires, uh, and particularly with this Seljuk Empire, there is a lot of decentralization because a lot of the territories are a bit remote or a bit difficult to access. You got to remember in the Roman Empire, there's the Mediterranean Sea that sits in the middle. Yeah, there are Roman roads and they're good and all that, but the Mediterranean Sea sits in the middle and that lets you hop across on a boat relatively quickly to lots of different areas of the empire. So, in lickety-split-quick, you can get from Italy to Greece to North Africa to Egypt. It's not that hard. If you are on campaign in Afghanistan, and you want to go over to Turkey, you have to go a very, very long way. And it's not, even with good roads, that's slower, more challenging, more difficult. Uh, so oftentimes with Persian empires, and you see this with the Seljuk empire, there's no one fixed capital. There's a kind of roving court, which is constantly moving around from city to city, And it's because you constantly need to be moving toward wherever the trouble spots are, as you understand it. You can't really stay in one place because things will just keep happening too far away for you to really be sure you know what's going on. So you have to constantly move around. Is it not called a big state capacity if they can suddenly
1: mobilize thousands of mounted Hmm. warriors? He advises the Sultan to kind of restore that as a custom and to fund more, you know, retainers at the yes. palace.
0: Yeah. Yes. For, for Nizam, so much of the state capacity is about the number of people you can employ. I mean, nowadays, oftentimes we have you know, people going, well, we have a bunch of state employees, but are they efficient? Are they being productive? This way of thinking is predicated on having the ability to structurally change things quickly and efficiently. In this period, if you Try to lay off a bunch of state employees, those people will take up arms and they'll establish fiefdoms in faraway places, and those places will just stop sending you tax revenue all of a sudden. Uh, and until you physically go over there and deal with them, they will continue to just not send you tax revenue. And this can get really annoying really quickly. <laughs> Right, You can imagine if you do austerity now and you fire a bunch of British civil servants they 're not going to go and set up a fiefdom in Wales, carve off a chunk of territory, and just refuse to have anything to do with you uh, that 's not going to happen they 're not going to establish themselves in some citadel in in uh, York and and just cut off revenue from the whole northern part of the country. That can actually happen here, and it does happen. big chunks of territory just go missing. <laughs> Because disgruntled people uh, decide that they're not scared of you because they know how the empire really works. They've got the training. They've got a large enough number of people that they think, well, if they don't get out here and it might take them years to get out here, I can just keep hiding away in the hills doing whatever it is that I might like to do. So this is the, the when we're talking about state capacity, yeah, you've got a lot of gold and you have a lot of men. But. Can you be everywhere at once? Can you trust your generals that you send far away? And one of the points that's being made here is that oftentimes the sultan is choosing these young and inexperienced people to be the commanders. And so they're taking people far away, large numbers of people who are in your employ. They're not solving the problems. And then you also have to worry if they're far away and they're not in the presence of the majesty. They might defect. They might run off and make their own uh, state far off in the middle of nowhere one main uh, major example of this of course is the sultanate of rum so after manzikert the seljuks defeat the byzantines they throw the byzantines more or less out of anatolia uh, and they carve out a huge chunk of territory but this sultanate of rum is so far away from persia that it feels it can just kind of declare its autonomy Uh, and a mere six years after the battle of Manzikert, the Sultanate of Rum is functionally an autonomous state in central Anatolia. Similarly, there are groups of, of heretics that set up their own states, set up their own fiefs in different parts of the territory. And these can actually get pretty close to the center of things. It's kind of amazing how close to the center of things they sometimes do get. So for instance, uh, In Egypt at this time, there is a Fatimid caliphate, a Shia caliphate. So a a separate caliphate, an alternative caliph to the Abbasid caliph. And uh, the followers of this caliphate uh, are called the Ismailists. I may be mispronouncing. I'm American. you got to live with it. But the Ismailists, right? They recognize the Fatimid caliph as the legitimate caliph. Uh, These guys set up. Uh, set themselves up on the Caspian Sea. So in modern day Iran, relatively close to a lot of the major Persian cities. And uh, because of this, it's easier to campaign against them because they're not too far away. But even though the Seljuks do campaign against them, it's very difficult to get rid of the Ismailists. And a significant chunk of this book is devoted to Hating on the Ismailists, talking about what a problem they are, and emphasizing that heresy is really not okay. Because heretics do not recognize the same you know, legitimate uh, king who was chosen by God. So this is where you know we kind of start to get into what ends up happening here? Why did these guys die in the same year? What goes on? So let me tell you a little bit about how this all ends, right? So, you know, while Nizam al-Mulk embraces some Zoroastrian ideas or ideas that come originally from the Zoroastrian period, he rejects Zoroastrianism and he argues that you should not choose Zoroastrians, Christians, or Jews for high offices because, in his view, they will, quote, despise the Muslims and afflict them with hardships on the pretext of taxes and accounts. And he gives a whole parable opposing the appointment of Jews as tax collectors, and then several chapters lambasting different groups of heretics. He also has a whole chapter about those who wear the veil, referring to women. And he says that women do not have, quote, complete intelligence. And when they participate in rule, in his view, they listen too much to their advisors and they fail to appropriately mistrust them. He goes so far as to attribute to the Prophet Muhammad the line, quote, consult women, but whatever they say, do the opposite, and that will be right. So, what's all this about? Well, for one, the Ismailist rebels, uh, they uh, set up a a guild of assassins called the Hashashin, or throat slitters in Arabic. Our word assassin comes from this word. Uh, And some accounts of the deaths uh, of the sultan and the vizier attribute their deaths to the Hashashin, suggesting that they were killed by Ismailists. Another account is that the sultan's wife, Turkan Khatun, persuades the sultan to murder Nizam al-Mulk. So there is significant criticism of heretics, minority religious groups, and women, in part because these are the groups which Nizam al-Mulk perceives to be personal threats. And indeed, one or the other of these is ultimately responsible for his death. It's not entirely clear which is the case. Some even suggest that the sultan on the advice of his wife works with the Hashashin to kill the vizier. <laughs> that both are involved and that it's a conspiracy involving both parties. Uh, the vizier dies first. Nizam al-Mulk goes first. And then shortly thereafter, the sultan is also murdered. The sultan's murder, it's not clear whether he's killed by the Hashashin or whether he's killed by supporters of Nizam al-Mulk who are angry about Nizam al-Mulk's death, blame him for it, and want to kill him out of a desire for vengeance. So the inability of the Seljuk Empire to deal with heretics and women ultimately leads to the death of the two leading figures. And then the fact that the empire has a kind of, of gavel kind inheritance mechanic, all of the sons are considered legitimate claimants. There isn't a, a primogeniture tradition where you say you give the firstborn son all of the territory. Instead, the Seljuk Turkic tradition is to divide territory among sons. And so, for that reason, it's hard to persuade some of the sons to stand down. Indeed, if some of the sons stood down, they might be killed to prevent them from potentially standing up later. So, when the sultan dies, all of the sons contest the territory. So, you have then three different potential factors leading to the civil conflict. One is court politics, uh, divide between the vizier and the wife. Second, we have uh, the Hashashin, the inability of the Seljuk Empire to deal with the Ismailists, the supporters of the Fatimid Caliph. And therefore, of course, Fatimid interference potentially in Seljuk affairs through the potential sponsorship of the Hashashin. Uh, the possibility that the Hashashin in contemporary terms might be viewed as a a state-sponsored terrorist group there to cause trouble for the Celtics. Uh, So uh, it would probably be unrealistic to expect the Ismailists to have been integrated or tolerated because they were explicitly what distinguishes them is that they think that the Fatimid Caliph is the legitimate ruler. That is one of their distinguishing beliefs. So it would have been difficult for them to have Come to some form of accord with the Seljuks. Uh, but then the inability also to drive them out or to confront them militarily, uh, you know, they were neither able to tolerate or integrate them, nor were they able to drive them out. And part of the trouble is if you're keeping around Abbasid caliphs that don't have any actual temporal power and in the meantime there are fatimid caliphs who do exercise temporal power the fatimid caliphs are going to look more legitimate than the abbasid caliphs that you're keeping around uh, at least to some people they're going to look more legitimate and so the kind of a puppet abbasid caliphate that continues under the saljuks uh, struggles to maintain its legitimacy in the face of that but you know even standing uh, aside from that the shia Uh, sunni split is older than this period and deeply rooted so what could have been done about this i'm not sure but it must be pointed out that our guy nizam had many decades to solve this problem and couldn't solve it because he was in office a very long time Uh, and he was also unable to get the sultan's court fully on his side. And as he was running the show as vizier, a division opened up between him and the wife. So those are a couple of things that went wrong. And it's not entirely clear which one ultimately results in his death, but a couple of things that he just couldn't solve. He was aware of the problems. The book talks about the problems at great length, uh, extensively and explicitly. But ultimately, there is no resolution to them in time to prevent Nizam's death. And so, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about when I read this book is, okay, here's a lot of, of good, small practical advice, but in the meantime, there are these big structural problems with the Seljuk empire. And it seems that Nizam knows about them, but he doesn't seem able to do anything about them. And, So, there are a couple of ways that you might think about this. Maybe you think that there's a simple solution that Nizam just couldn't find. In that case, Nizam's not as competent as he makes out to be. But I think probably more realistically, Nizam was pretty good at his job, but the state capacities of the Seljuk empire were limited, especially given the size of the territory. And that meant it was always possible to have rebellions and always likely that remote areas would go rogue. And there's a lot of useful advice about how to minimize that as a problem. But structurally, the character of the Seljuk Empire doesn't easily allow uh, for you to solve it in any kind of permanent way without accepting a significant shrinking of the empire. And one of the things I like to point out, uh, if you have a really big state, you need to be more inclusive because you're going to have more pluralism in that state. And so if you have a thicker and more rigid and more exclusive legitimation story, it's going to be harder to hang on to territories that are further afield and more different from your core territory. And so because the Seljuks are committed to the Sunni religion, to an Orthodox Sunni account, their ability to incorporate populations that are further afield without rebellion is more limited. And then you also have certain fundamental state capacity issues with large Persian empires. And if you, you notice historically, the versions of the Persian empire that get the biggest tend to have these issues with, with problems way far out because uh, these very big versions of the Persian empire really struggle to project state power out at the periphery. They can occasionally you can bring a a Persian king out to one particular region. He can win a battle against somebody out in, in one particular region, but usually at the cost of having to leave other regions in the hands of other people who may not be competent. And so oftentimes Persian empires can only get really big if there are weaknesses in the periphery, if the surrounding states are weak. And so, in the case of, of the Seljuk Empire, it was the weakness of the Abbasids that allowed the Seljuk Empire to expand into Syria and Iraq. And then it was the weakness of the Byzantines that allowed them to expand into Anatolia. And then it was, of course, the fact that they came from the Eurasian steppe. Originally, it took a while for new states to appear on the Eurasian steppe. Eventually, though, those states do appear on the Eurasian steppe and The breakdown and civil conflict that results from the inheritance mechanic uh, causes the empire to splinter, causes various portions of it to be lost. The Abbasid Caliphate breaks free and establishes independence. A new steppe people come and sweep into Persia. And what you end up with, actually, is just the Sultanate of Rum. The Sultanate of Rum in Anatolia, in the former Byzantine territory, is the part of the Seljuk Empire that lasts the longest. It lasts until the Mongol conquest. So there's a lot of of interesting and I think useful practical advice in this book about how to run an empire of this type. But there are certain limitations that Persian empires face, certain fundamental structural obstacles, which Nizam al-Mulk could not solve and which I don't think anybody could solve, which is why in every version of the Persian empire, you have these problems.
1: Some of the common people who in the stories complain to the sultan, they kind of say exactly what you said. Someone says, take no more territory than you can know the extent of and be responsible for. And then referring back to what we said earlier, the king having eyes and hands everywhere, uh, the only reason he's able to get her property back is by basically poisoning and predicting uh, the movements of a band of robbers who had taken it. But they can only defeat these guerrilla tactics with surveillance, right? And it's only guerrilla tactics that in the periphery that are effective in disrupting his authority. So it's not too bad.
0: But Well, the most successful version of the Persian Empire was, of course, the old Achaemenid Empire, which predates even Alexander the Great's conquest. And the old Achaemenid Empire was successful in part because it was very religiously syncretic. The uh, Achaemenid Persians rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. They were tolerant of the Babylonian gods. They were Zoroastrian by uh, most accounts, but they were willing to allow other faiths to persist in other parts of the territory. Once you get to a stage where there are these sharper forms of religious conflict in which the identity of the legitimate master of the world is itself at the center of the religious dispute, it becomes very difficult to have that kind of syncretism at scale. And that leads to more rebellion and more trouble. Ultimately, it's the Turks in Rum that figure out how to integrate uh, more effectively minority religious groups. It's those Turks that uh, oversee and uh, interact with Byzantine Christian uh, Greeks. And ultimately, It's a splinter part of the Sultanate of Rum that is able to establish the Ottoman Empire and establish uh, that that larger territorial empire that oversees many different populations. But the Seljuk state really struggles to do a lot of these things. I
1: thought at first the Sultanate of Rum was worse than the Seljuks it broke away from because they were more destroying the settled agriculture, and just clearing it for nomadic pastures. Um, But... Also, yeah,
0: yeah. I would not say that the Sultanate of Rum was uh, you know, really open-handed or tolerant per se, but there is a certain practical issue that you have of managing this large Greek Christian population, and the fact that you have this problem from the start forces you to adapt uh, and and follow a more pragmatic strategy. Uh, There's a journal article I'm actually going to stick in the uh, for our listeners on Patreon. I'm going to put it in the uh, show notes uh, that kind of illustrates some of the religious uh, disputes that went on within the Sultanate of Ram and how it was resolved, not happily, but in a manner that was consistent with the maintenance of the state.
1: Is it uh, fair to say maybe Nizam played into the what you call one of the structural problems by? Encouraging ethnic competition within the army, but not within the, you know, the peacetime administration. So, yeah, having mixed armies.
0: Yeah. Were. So, so it's this is interesting. There are chunks where he talks about the value of having different groups in the army. Now, these are not different religious groups. Yeah, not heretics. But, but different uh, peoples in the army. They're all meant to be Orthodox. They're not meant to be heretics. But different peoples in the army. However, when he starts talking about the civil administration, which is closer to his own domain, he suggests that some number of Turks can be admitted to the civil administration, some number of thousands per year. But they have to start as pages and they have to be in a very particular kind of uh, initial role so that they get the hang of settled life. There's a, a nomadic versus settler distinction in this work and the Turks are associated with being nomadic. And if you are nomadic, then you, uh, on this account, don't really have the knack for tax collection, don't really have the knack for managing cities. uh, And you ought to only very slowly dip your toe into that. He's more ready and willing to believe that the military can be more pluralistic. And his argument there is that if you have multiple different groups in the army, A, they're all going to, make each other a little bit nervous because they're all going to be a little bit uncomfortable around each other. So they won't get lazy. They won't start drinking and and being lax because they'll be worried that they might have their throat slit in their sleep by these other groups. Secondly, there will be a little bit of a competitive element. They'll want to prove that they're braver or more courageous than one another and that will cause them to fight better, he argues. It should be emphasized that our vizier is not just a civil administrator. He did go on military campaign. So he's not ignorant about military affairs. This is not a Persian bureaucrat making uh, ignorant comments about the military. This is a guy who did have expertise in both domains. And his reputation is very good. Uh, Among Islamic scholars who are familiar with him, he is very, very well regarded. Uh, Of course, Westerners are not going to like the things at all that he says about women. uh, And they're not going to like at all the things that he says about Jews or other religious groups.
1: In terms of, yeah, governing an empire, though. uh, Well, he gives very detailed information, how you advance in rank. So even those Turks who are made to settle, very detailed how they become pages, what they do the first, second, third, tenth year. So in a way, maybe that's more effective than just kind of, uh, I don't know if you could call it metaphysical or a big make, maybe Michael cellos type worldview where you just instruct kings and teach them about the good and yeah.
0: Yeah, he will give. he does give, you're right about this, he does give a very specific career trajectory for ordinary bureaucrats. He's not going to do that for the sultan. He's not going to talk about the education of kings. But he does give a very specific career trajectory for bureaucrats. Yeah, there is detail on that because that's practical. That has uh, practical import. And there are active debates going on about what kinds of jobs or what kinds of titles different people ought to be given. All of that is a matter of of policy.
1: But surely it would also bear back on the education of kings because the kings have to rely on judges who aren't just his agents, but are also, you know, they're, they're supposed to be badge wearers for the caliphate so not his kingdom. And the Islamic scholars, maybe they today might respect Nizam al-Malik because he founded the Nizamiyas, Nizamiyas, the universities, institutions of higher learning. So all over the realm, he's kind of got a vision for improving the knowledge. And the whole the point of the king is just knowledge of everything that happens, surveillance. So you can see indirectly, maybe he's going that way.
0: Yeah. It's not framed as as a, as a, pedagogical exercise. It's more about getting skilled people who can do specific things. So his view of, of say, the universities, in many ways, it's it's closer to the kind of contemporary view of, of preparing people for jobs, getting people who have the skills necessary to perform certain discrete roles. It's not about uh, creating philosophers as such. No. Although, of course, philosophy will occur at some of these universities, and uh, they will contribute to the intellectual and artistic life of not just the Seljuk Empire, but uh, to some degree s- subsequent empires. Uh, but yes, uh, it's there it's not as if he is disinterested in education uh, writ large, but he doesn't have the kind of account that you might associate with Cellos or with some of the other Platonists we've covered. Uh, no hierarchy of virtues. There is an, an emphasis on ritual insofar as he's very specific about how kings ought to receive people but again it's a kind of practical thing for establishing majesty it's more straightforwardly to do with legitimation it's less about say creating you know you know as confucius wishes to create a uh, united customary community it's not that kind of thing it's just about how to appropriately impress people so that they'll behave in many ways it's a more minimalist account of political theory because it it needs to fit a state which has more minimalist capacities. You know, the main thing that the sultan can do is employ people and punish people. Those are the main things that the sultan can get done. And the main thing the vizier oversees is the tax collection and you know, sometimes the army. Uh, that's really all this state is doing. It's collecting tax. It's, it's overseeing military personnel. It's got a big, 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 big court with all sorts of crazy lavish things going on, you won't see anywhere else. Uh, and that's, that's what the state does. It funds the court, it funds the army, it funds tax collection.
1: Does, does the court create any either material wealth or kind of knowledge? Because obviously it attracts counsel. So the king is expected to listen to people more learned than him and listen to the majority opinion. So there's a lot of people there, perhaps with a lot
0: of skill. And also doing nothing as well. As long as the king mistrusts all of them and is constantly second-guessing their advice and bringing in other people. So it's not so much that the king should put his own judgment ahead of theirs. It's that the king should seek out multiple opinions about things and try to get to the bottom of what's really going on. That doesn't mean just straightforwardly deferring to any particular person. Although there are lots of things that the king is meant to defer to the vizier about which is why the vizier is the one who must be most closely watched because the vizier has such an expansive role in this account because Nizam al-Mulk is the vizier
1: Do you think this theory has more as bigger distinctions between each social station or class or whatever you want to call it interest group because of the just the huge majesty the sultan needs to have And because if sultan doesn't respect majesty, people will think maybe their own skills aren't valued. He says this. They won't respect nobility either.
0: Yeah, there is a suggestion that if the sultan doesn't treat, say, nobles uh, appropriately, that this will also cause other classes to feel that they're not appreciated or feel as if the sultan doesn't uh, see their worth. So this is a, a very conservative idea. This idea being that, Peasants will want to see you treat the nobles as better than them. Uh, If you don't treat the nobles as better than them, then you may not think that they're worth anything at all. You may not understand their value. So the way that the sultan communicates this understanding of where everybody belongs is by treating whoever's proximate, which will often be the nobility, in the appropriate way that is fitted to the rank. So in this way, all of the ceremony that's about treating someone the appropriate way based on their class or their rank, it's all about... Contributing to the majesty of the sultan and establishing legitimacy. It doesn't have a kind of broader, you know, trying to manage or curate a culture. It doesn't have a kind of a broader political economy narrative. And the main thing the sultan does in terms of political economy is collect tax. You know, uh, you know There's got to be tax collectors, but those report mainly to the vizier. And then uh, the sultan is also... Got to be making sure that people's land is not being stolen and that people aren't being screwed over. But again, that's a criminal justice angle. The Sultan is very heavily involved in criminal justice. It's not as if there's a whole agricultural plan here. There's no big central plan.
1: But there are granaries, and apparently, you know, a Sultan saved people for seven years from drought just because they had grain yes. storage. So that's quite...
0: Yes, the Sultan should acquire enough to be able to alleviate grain issues. Because if you don't have enough grain to alleviate grain issues, sometimes there will be instability in a particular area or drought in a particular area. And if you don't get grain to people, people who are hungry have no reason not to revolt. Mm. And indeed, in this part of the world, grain shortages have always been a source of political instability and continue to be a source of political instability. Grain price problems had a lot to do with starting the contemporary Syrian civil war.
1: And that's a good enough deal for people, basically. So just not be interfered with, pay your taxes,
0: and then to see a massive inequality that's a good enough deal now, in this period in this period yeah, these days people have much more substantive expectations for states yeah, and when we were doing platonists a lot of platonists want states to do things they've never done before or they've never done particularly well uh, a lot of this is about making sure that the state does the things that everybody expects it to do, at least semi-competently. Given the scale of the state, it's hard to do even the basic things that you would expect an ancient or medieval state to do. It's hard to do those things even even okay, mm-hmm. because this state is so large, it has such a hard time knowing what's going on. And that's the classic Persian Empire problem. If you're really big, how do you know what's happening? And why should people care about you? Anyway, we're over the hour, so that's probably a good place to end it. Thank you guys for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.